0: Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and will explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients, we have partners. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of From Vision to Creation. Today's guest is a true titan in the world of business, a force who has not only scaled the heights of corporate success, but has done so with an entrepreneurial spirit that sets him apart. We have the pleasure of speaking to Sean Freeman, the chief operating officer of Goodkind Co., a trailblazing clean beauty manufacturing company. Sean's journey is nothing short of extraordinary. Picture this he started his first company while still in college, igniting a spark that would propel him into an explosive career. Currently at the helm of Goodkind Co., Sean is the driving force behind the operations of a venture-backed clean beauty manufacturing company, with innovative brands like Fleur and Explore Naturals under its umbrella. But let's rewind a bit and traverse through Sean's remarkable career. From being the senior vice president at Ralph Lauren, where he spearheaded the company's global digital technology and operations, To steering the digital transformation program at GameStop, Sean has consistently been at the forefront of industry evolution. As president of Tickets Now and senior vice president of resale at Ticketmaster, he played a pivotal role in key partnerships with major sports organizations, contributing to over $400 million in gross ticket revenue. His tenure as chief technology officer at Hendango and Hotels.com showcased his prowess in leading product and technology teams during the formative years of the digital era. Join us in this insightful conversation as we unravel the layers of Sean Freeman's illustrious career, exploring the lessons, challenges, and triumphs that have defined him. This episode is not just a testament to Sean's remarkable achievements, but also a source of inspiration for anyone charting their course in the world of business and innovation. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. It really is, Sean. And you know, I've been particularly excited for this conversation because my first job out of college, as you know, was with working for you at Fleur, where I learned a lot, which is really a really fun time of my life. So I'm I'm glad that we're doing this now. Well, I I appreciate that. It's it's good to see you have the success that you're having. Thank you, Sean. I want to dive in first because I know you started school at UTSA and then you started your own business while you were in school. Can you talk about, you know, starting that business and what gave you the idea at the beginning?
1: Yeah, um, like I think a lot of ideas, it, most of it was happenstance and luck, I think, but um, I was uh, going to UTSA studying computer science, fully intending to, you know, graduate and then pursue my career and software development. Um, and that, you know, to, to date myself, this was in the sort of mid eighties and I was, you know, working a couple of jobs, paying my way through school. And my dad had retired from the military and was doing some consulting and was working for a furniture retailer there in the, in the area and approached me and said, you know, we need to write some software for this company. And would you be willing to do it? Sort of on, you know, on an hourly basis, basically. And for me, it was a lot better pay than I think I was, I think I was working at Albertsons as a grocery, as a, you know, stocker at the time and one other job. And so, you um, know, I jumped on the opportunity and over the next year or so built really what today you would probably call an ERP system, an enterprise resource planning system. So it was a, you could do, it had a point of sale, a module and then it had inventory management and accounting modules and reporting and sort of all the tools necessary to run the business. And at the end of it, the, uh, the guy that was the owner of the company said, this is amazing. Have you guys ever thought about, you know, trying to go out and sell it to anybody else? And of course we hadn't, but when we got to thinking about it, um, we thought it might be something that we could do. And so we ended up forming a company. It was me, my father, and this other gentleman and that's sort of what got started. And I, I tried to do that for about a year while I was still going to school and realized I was working 60 hours a week at this job and somehow trying to fit school in and it wasn't working for me. And at the time, computer lab back then was, they were using pretty old machines at, at UTSA at that time. And so it was still punch cards. And so you had to schedule time at like midnight to get access to the lab and so it was just really challenging. And I, you know, I said to myself one day, well, this is the career that you would be going into. You're already into it. Why do you need to continue to finish going to school? If you're already that, you know, doing the work that you plan to do after school. And so right, I, I took the leap and left school and, you know, went full time to
0: just working at the company. I didn't realize that it was you and your father that started this company together. When he asked you to code software for a company, did you already know how to code?
1: Yeah. So I started programming. I was lucky. I started programming when I was 12. I, uh, was accepted into this gifted and talented program. We were living in Alaska at the time. My dad was in the army and one of the benefits of the program was I could take college courses, um, while I was in high school. And I decided I was, you know, a very classic nerd at the time, um, into computers and, um, so I signed up for a computer programming class when I was 12 and just fell in love with it, you know, just decided this is sort of the career for me. And so I, I programmed, i had been programming, you know, for six or seven years before I even got to college. Um, so obviously the computer science degree is more than just programming.
0: There's more to it. But yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. So I'm very comfortable doing it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that really was just happenstance. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you all eventually ended up successfully selling the company to Exceed. How soon after starting the company did you guys go for the sale? Yeah. So there's a couple stops
1: in between that. So that company that I started out of college, I actually left that company after about four years. Sort of long story short, um, woke up one day and had been working 80 hours a week, Seven days a week, um, holidays. I was the head of, you know, basically the head of software development for the company. I was traveling a lot, installing systems at different clients around the country, and you know, it was in my young twenties. And I just woke up one day and was like, "I wasn't. I'm not exactly sure this is what I intended to do." And so I just went in and sold, you know, pretty short order, sold my portion of the business to my dad and the other investor, and then I took about a year. I DJed, I, you know, worked at, I ran a music store. I did a, some other things just to kind of sort of, you know, experience the world in a different way um, and trying to figure out sort of really what is it that I wanted to do. Um, and I ended up working at an Apple dealer for a while. And that was when the Macintosh first came out. And I was very interested in the Mac, um, bought a Mac and started playing with it. One of the first things that the Mac did was introduce this notion of desktop publishing. So desktop publishing became using a computer to do graphic design, basically. And I kind of fell in love with the idea of it. And so I, you know, through self study, worked on my design skills, um, and then ended up um, working at an insurance company for a while running their in house design department. Partly, honestly, because I could convince the guy that despite my portfolio not being the best, I could help computerize the whole department and save him a bunch of money. So they uh, they hired me and I did that for about a year. And then I uh, left um, with and joined forces with another designer in Dallas um, to start a company called Focus Two. And Focus Two was a design, we were a de- traditional design firm, so we were doing corporate identity, logos, brochures, packaging, signage, you know, all the kinds of things that a traditional graphic design firm would doing and having some success at it. Um, and then in the mid nineties, the internet sort of came and uh, we had some clients that came to us. I think one of them was Neiman Marcus. We were doing a lot of work for at the time. And said, you know, there's this thing called the internet and we need to build a website. Do you know how to build a website? And it just ended up being sort of the perfect marriage of the now two skill sets I had, which I could program and I could design. And so I said, sure, we can do that. And that one thing sort of led to another. And Focus 2 sort of became this, what today you would probably call like an internet consultancy or digital consultancy or something where we were doing primarily websites for companies started doing e-commerce sites sort of in the days when the word was basically invented. And that company just grew very quickly um, in the late
0: nineties. And I sold that company in 2000 to exceed. Yeah. And I think that probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the advantages that you had back at that time was there weren't tools like Shopify, Wix, web builders, you had to know how to code. I mean, to give you some sense of it, uh, yeah, everything was
1: coded. Now, in the coming years, in the next few years, there started to become some platforms, some tools that were built for those things. So, um, there was a company called ATG that was uh, one of the first e-commerce platform companies. But these were very big, sort of enterprise-class software platforms. So, you if you were a small business, you would never buy ATG because just the licensing alone was you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to license the software. So we were really doing that for very large companies. So I was doing I did I built La Quinta's e-commerce site, I built Hilton's e-commerce site. I did a lot of work for American Airlines. So I sort of carved out this niche in travel. Um but those were very large projects. Um we did work from smaller companies, but that was sort of in the the dot com boom when uh internet startups were getting, you know, millions and millions of dollars in funding. So I remember uh vividly doing a proposal for a company called eLogo in 99 it was a one-page proposal for a million dollar website oh my gosh a million dollars i literally wrote a one-page proposal and just said one million dollars and we got paid a million dollars <laughs> to build this website so yeah so this was it was also in the days where people didn't even know how a e-commerce or internet consultancy should operate or if you were going to build an e-commerce organization what should the structure of it be I remember there were people that would argue what we were doing was really media and so they would say you need producers and other type of media roles that you would expect in a media company and then some people said no it's pure software development so you need project managers and quality assurance people and all the stuff that you normally get in software and it was a very big debate in the industry at that time as to sort of what the proper structure of a company doing that kind of work was. Um, you know, it ultimately landed on the software development side, but it took a few years to shake out. And I remember going up against companies that operated
0: very differently or were structured very differently than we were at that time. And, you know, Sean, having worked with you for over a little over three years, I'm actually not surprised that the more creative side of business is what attracted you, especially when the Apple computer just came out and you were able to do desktop publishing. I'm not surprised because I feel like you've always taken a very creative approach in the way that you work in general, but do you think that taking that year off to kind of just reset, to have that time to DJ and just figure out what you wanted to do, do you think that that was a, a really important step in your stories to you know go on to do the type of work that you did?
1: Yeah, I th- I think sort of, you know, one the things I've I've spoken a lot, at, you know, at different functions and at schools and universities and people will ask, well, you know, can you give me career advice and how did you get to where you are? And I've always said, I can't recommend following the path that I went on because it's not a it's not a path that makes a lot of sense if you were just saying, or logically saying like how should my career go? But I would say I had a few good things happen to me and then I had opportunities that came to me and I jumped on those opportunities. I took advantage of those opportunities. So I sort of, as they say, when opportunity knocks, I always opened the door and went in. Um, But so yes, that, that year I think for me was a chance to sort of reflect on what it is that I cared about and what I wanted to do and why I think at the end, I still felt like being involved with computers in some way or another was interesting to me. But just programming alone was not enough for me. And I wasn't really sure what that meant. You know, I just felt like I can do something different with technology than just programming. And so when the Mac came out and I started playing around with PageMaker and these desktop publishing tools, I think I was at a place there where I was open to this notion of maybe this is something I can do. You know, if you'd have probably asked me a year or two before that hey do you or do you think you can be a graphic designer i would have said no way i'm a right brain programmer engineer guy you know i've never done art in my life and never really had much interest in it honestly interesting and so once i started down that path i was obviously not trained and so one thing that happened at the insurance company was i met this guy um, who was a traditionally trained designer through a mutual friend, and I talked him into coming to work with me at the insurance company. And then we left and formed Focus Two together. And the the trade that we made was I would teach him how to use computers if he would teach me more about how to be a designer. And one of the things that he made me do, which I appreciate today at the time was very frustrating, was he said, the only way I know how to teach you to be a designer is to teach you to do it the traditional way, which means you need to learn to draw. Um, And you need to be able to do these things by hand. He said, the computer is a great tool, but it's just a tool. If you don't learn how to draw and you don't learn color theory, and you don't learn the things that you need as sort of your foundation, then you'll never be a good designer. And so that was still at a time when we would present ideas to clients and they would be hand-drawn it was still took so much time to create comps and ideas with the computer because they were still pretty slow at that time, at that time that the fastest way to do it was actually to sketch them. And so we would literally sketch the ideas, sketch the type, sketch the whole thing out. As you might imagine, go through some iterations, tightening it, polishing it, but getting it to where it was ready to present. And we presented. that's how we presented ideas. Um, And so it was a painful year or two for me as I had to learn how to draw. Um, But, I think that now, as part of my foundation, you know, was critical, and so just yeah, to your to your question, I think you know, I I don't think I would have gone down that path at all without taking
0: that break from programming and trying something different. And I think it's interesting too how you and your and your former business partner were the perfect pair for that business.
1: Yeah, it, 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 in fact, it continued to form, which I think also informed. My path, right? Which was, I found out a couple things about myself in that time. One was, I seemed to have good instincts for business. Um, I never had thought of my, you know, when we had the software company, my dad was kind of doing the, the business operations piece of it. I was just programming. But when we formed the design firm, there was no one else. I had to figure out how to run the business. I had to figure out finance. I had to figure out how to do sales. I had to figure out all of those things. And I, pretty quickly realized that I had a a instincts for it and an ability to do it that my partner didn't have. And he's one of my best friends and we've been friends for 35 years. Um, and we still, I'm going to Dallas. I'll see him this weekend. So, and I love the guy, but you know, he's sort of that classic artist where he's an amazing artist and can't quite figure out how to run a business. And so, fortunately for us and our partnership i was able to handle that part of it while he kind of stayed focused on on the creative work you know i i still did my share of creative work but um he was able to kind of focus on that and i think so that was one thing i kind of learned a lot about myself as a business person at that time and and realized it was something that i you know i had at least some ability and then The other thing I figured out around that time, especially as we started doing more websites, was that what I really enjoyed doing was solving problems and coming up with creative solutions. And so if you think about it, writing software in some way is solving a problem, right? There's a business need and you need to write a piece of software that helps facilitate that process or meets that business need. And so there's some very distinct ways you go about thinking about how to create that and make that. Design was another thing for me, was really communication problems. You know, a company needed to communicate a message to an audience to, you know, promote a product or um, change opinions or any other things that might there might be their goals or objectives. And coming up with something unique and creative for that, to me, was just sort of a problem-solving exercise. You know, and there's, you know, when you're design, they have, there's things they'll talk about like design thinking and design process, and there's tools for how you think about creating design basically, but those tools and those techniques are very applicable to business problems as well. Um, and so what I became attracted to, and I think what really drove my career all the way to today was, my interest in solving more and
0: more complex problems both through programming and just general issues that that come up in business right if you think about running a company right and growing
1: a company it's a whole set of complex problems right what's the right culture how do you build a culture how do you hire the right people how do you build a team how do you get that team to work well together right how do you go to market all of those are problems to solve right and the bigger and more complex the company the bigger and more complex the problems are to solve and so i found myself on this trajectory where every time i got an opportunity to go tackle a new and interesting problem i took it so i sold you know focus to big theory which was the company i sold to exceed i spent a few years at a couple years at exceed as a as a Surprisingly as a C-level executive this is a public company and as part of the acquisition of my my company they made me the chief creative officer of this company which was a whole nother problem i had to figure out i was like how do you become an executive in a public company i don't you know i had never had that exposure before i had to be on an earnings call with investors i think 2 months after i you know joined the company and had no idea what that <laughs> experience was going to be like so again i dug in, read, talked to people, tried to figure out, you know, what is the best approach here? What do I need to know? And what is it like to work in a public company like that? Where, you know, we had, I think we had 12 offices. I think I had three or 400 people working for me at that time. Again, much larger than anything I'd ever experienced before. Um, And so that, uh, that whole experience was just like a problem to solve like how do i succeed in this environment right and so every sort of step along the way after that to me has been i've always taken it because i found the problem was interesting
0: to try and solve oh i see yeah it, more it it's what i what i really like about this is you don't look at a problem as an you know an obstacle that's going to inhibit your progress it's just another thing to figure out and get get beyond Yeah. It's this marriage of my, my engineer. I'm an engineer,
1: right? Engineers like to solve engineering problems and a designer where I like design, design problems. It's sort of the marriage of those two. You know, I think maybe somebody that just, I, that's the way I look at the world. I I don't look at problems as as something that's going to stop you. I look at problems as something you have to just sort of figure out. Right. And if you can figure it out, then you can move past that. Um, and that's or you can make it better, right? Or create something that hasn't been there before, or whatever it is that the, you know,
0: the problem's blocking you from. I love that. That's gold, Sean. That that's gonna be the quote we used to promote the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that out. Um and so when you were working with your partner and you guys um were running this design firm, you mm-hmm. said you mentioned that you kind of created a niche in travel. Mm-hmm. Is that what led to you eventually? becoming the chief technology officer at hotels.com yeah so
1: i uh was working at exceed as the chief creative officer my son was going to private school in dallas you know one of his friend's parents the father was the chief operating officer of a company i try to remember i think it was literally like 1-800 hotel was the original name of it and uh the original company that was founded was essentially a affiliate networking company. So they, they bought hotel rooms um, from hotels and they would sell them to affiliate websites and other things on the web, like almost as a B2B business. So they weren't a consumer facing business. They were just sort of selling inventory marked up to these different travel, little small travel sites all around them the world. And they have been doing that successfully. Um, These guys, it was two partners that had founded the company. And I think they had the business up to, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars a year in business. So it was a decent sized business. And they were thinking about starting a consumer facing website. So they wanted to build a consumer travel site. And the father of my, uh, or the father of my son's friend, sorry, this seems a little convoluted, you know, I got to know him. He kept saying, because he knew I had done some of these travel websites. He said, "Would you know, why don't you come work with us? We're going to build this site. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a great opportunity. You know, and I was in this job. And I said, you know, now it's not good timing. I've You know, I'm at this company. And, you know, I really like what I'm doing. And I'm learning a lot. And so I kept turning him down, kept turning him down. The dot-com bust happened. Um, and the company that was a consulting firm that I was at started to decline um, a lot of its clients were internet startups, which of course lost all their funding. And, you know, this is sort of when pets.com went away and all those kinds of businesses went away. And so I started thinking about what I want to do. I was still at the company, but I knew the end was going to come at some point. And I revisited with this guy and said, well, let's, let me meet the CEO and the partners and see if there's a good fit. You know, the funny thing is the first meeting I had with, um, the guy's name was Dave Littman they had an office over uh in in dallas and i went into the office and the receptionist was sitting at a desk that was basically a sawhorse with like you know a just a piece of wood on top of it it was the cheapest possible thing that you know she could be using for a desk and i remember thinking hmm and then i go what's (laughs) going on here These guys have a couple, This is a couple million dollar business. I'm surprised that this is the furniture. And then I met Dave and Dave spent 30 minutes telling me how the whole business was about saving money, about cost cutting and keeping things lean and staying lean and not spending money on anything and just kept this sort of almost a rant going on. And I left that meeting. I remember calling my wife and saying, uh, this I can't work at this company. Like I, I, his values and my values are so completely different. Like I just, there's no way I could be happy working for this company. So I said no, and they came back, and they came back, and they came back, and fine and so I said, well, why don't you make me an offer? Let's see at least what compensation would look like. Let's see what the offer looks like. You know, equity, whatever it is, the package is going to. So Dave put a package together and gave it to me. It was way under market way under what i should be paid and i just said you know case closed like uh, you know i'm not interested yeah and so i think it was like three or four weeks later the ceo the friend of mine came back around and said listen i understand dave and you won't need to deal with dave much you know you'll be reporting to me and why don't you and i sit down and see if we can work out a deal And so he sat down with me and we ended up working out a deal that I finally agreed to. And I joined the company about a year later, we launched hotels.com. So I built, so I built the team and I built the platform for hotels.com and we launched hotels.com. And, you know, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, you know, it became a very big travel website. And this was in the days when travel was really one of the early winners on the, on the internet. You know, there were a lot of industries that were trying to sort of move to to the internet, but travel was one of the very first ones that successfully did it. And, you know, Hotels.com, I think, obviously a great brand name, mm-hmm. you know, they, I think they paid a million dollars for the domain. Oh my um, God. Even back then. Um, and probably the best decision they made from a business standpoint. Uh, and the business just grew, you know, really rapidly. I think within a couple of years, we were something like 10 million uniques, 15 million uniques a month on the website. You know, when I finally left the company after the acquisition by IC and merger with Expedia, I think it was about about four billion, five billion dollar a year company. So, wow, tremendous growth. Um, so it was a, uh, it was a, uh, again, and this why I say sort of like opportunity knocked. I opened in. I had no idea. As far as I know, we could have been failed a year later. Who knows what was going to happen? It was almost like joining a startup because it was a completely new website, new business model. So.
0: But, uh, you know, we got it right. It worked out. And I know that at this time you had experience in business, coding, design. But to say, I'm going to jump in here to this, you know, travel website, grow the company, lead the team. I imagine there were some moments where you thought, how am I going to do this? It's so nuanced. It's It's new for my career. What was the mentality behind the driving force that made that company a success, do you think?
1: I think there were a few things. I think, I think we had a really good team, you know, for all of my issues with Dave and and Dave Lippman and I still stay in contact. Um, I think he was a, a good operator. I think his focus on costs sometimes wasn't the right strategic decision. I think like there were times I'd really have to push for investment in things that I felt like I shouldn't have to push you this hard to invest in this. It should be obvious, but for the most part i've seen a lot of companies fail because they overspend as well right so there's the flip side of it i think um david was a, a good operator and had good instincts i think we had a, a head of marketing cheryl rosner who's a you know friend of mine and was an amazing marketing executive and i think had some really amazing ideas um i don't know if you remember Years ago, for apps, when you bought a plane ticket, you got the actual physical ticket. And it would come in a a sleeve, like a jacket, like a little, almost like a little envelope.
0: Yes, I do, I remember put that. put it in
1: the envelope. She was the first person to negotiate a deal to have advertising on the back of that envelope. And mm. so we promoted hotels.com on the back of that envelope. And that was a huge growth driver for the business. And it was super inexpensive because no one had ever done it before. So it was really cheap and super effective marketing. So there's just a lot of those things that happened. And you know, as for me, I was confident that I could figure out how to put a team together to build the website because I'd done it already, right? I'd done it for when I built my company and for the websites that we had built. I'd built an e-commerce site for Herman Miller. I'd built a bunch of travel websites. So I knew from a technology standpoint, I could figure it out. I'd done it before what i didn't know was how to build something like that within a company that wasn't that was where that was literally what the company did not you know it's one thing and this is what consultants will always say it's one thing to consult you know to a company it's another thing to be inside the company right Mm -hmm. so to be client side and this was my first time to be client side and so that was the unknown factor for me like how what's it going to be like to be doing this day after day, not just build it, hand it over and walk away, right? Do it and operate it every day and have to figure out every day how to make it better and continue to grow and add new features and functionality. Like what's that process like, right? How do you do that? What's the team look like that's doing that? That all had to be figured out. Um, And again, it was so early back then that I didn't have a lot of people to... Ha- I mean, it wasn't like there was examples all over the place that you could follow. You right, know? you can I mean, watch Expedia, a YouTube video. In the travel world, Expedia existed, Orbitz existed. I think Hotwire started after us. Um, but so there was there was a couple of other travel companies. But Expedia ran, you know, because I got to know those guys. Expedia ran like Microsoft because they were all Microsoft guys. So they formed their... They structured the company and operated very much much more like a technology company like Microsoft than a travel company. It was a very different model and different organizational structure than what we had at hotels.com. So it was a great learning experience for me. Not only was I still at this sort of very senior level in the company, so I was involved in a lot of the strategic decisions, but figuring out how to operate and then figuring how to scale and grow a business like that, um, you know, we became global. You know, we built websites for You know, I had offices ultimately in London and in Asia and people working for me in all those different countries and, you know, building websites for those different countries and markets. So, you know, I had to learn how to do things
0: on a global basis. All of that happened in that time. How did you go about learning how to handle things on a global basis? I mean, how are you managing people all over the world? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I just started doing it. I
1: remember the day we said we wanted to you know, expand out of the U S and try, we, we did UK first, which was the obvious, you know, English speaking country, big market, you know, one of the key, uh, you know, when, when you go into Europe, they'll say it's, I think they used to say E figs. It's like England, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, right? Those are the key five markets when you go into Europe and we chose UK as the entry point. And so that one, I just went to the UK and I spent, you know, a couple of months, basically creating a small version of the team that I had in the US and put them in, you know, on the, on the project of building the UK version of the website. So, you know, they could obviously borrow the same technology and use a lot of the same site structure. Everything was, was mostly a lot of localization of that site, right? You had to use the right currency, you had to use the right payment methods, things like that. Those were all unique, but the site was Functionally, very similar to the U.S. site, and so we just set up a, essentially, a small little company that mirrored was a small version of what we had in the U.S. Learning how to manage that, manage teams remotely, um, you know, I was sort of trial and error, I guess. I would, I would fly over once a month um, and spend at least a week um, there with that team, and spend time with them, coach, you know try to steer things. This was before the time that you had tools like Zoom or things like that. So mm. you could do phone calls, conference calls, but you didn't have like video conferencing. Um, certainly not in the way that you have it today. You, I think they started to have these very old, like very archaic ones that were really expensive to set up and the pain to use and stuff like that. So we never really used them. So mostly it was face-to-face. I would do conference calls once a week and then I would fly over there for a week, a month and spend time with the teams
0: um, and just kind of, over time learned how to manage a remote team. What's blowing me away, Sean, is that at this point in your career, you already have learned a lot. You have a ton of experience, and yet this is only the beginning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I was still, I think just just about 30 years old by this time. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Talk talk about a masterclass in business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was uh I remember up until right about then, I was always still always like the you know the boy genius that you know I was always called as like the boy genius the guy that this young kid that was coming in and, and meeting with people and you know when we had the software company selling them software and installing software was in my you know very young 20s at that time and so I'd always had this almost perception of myself as being the youngest guy in the room because I always was up until that point now once I hit that point you know sort of 30s young 30s then there started to be more and more people my age around me. And so that, you know, that, that moniker wore off and I, you know, started to feel like I was at least the same age everybody was around mm-hmm. me, you know. But yeah, that was, was a lot of growth
0: and opportunity in a pretty short period of time. So Hotels.com ends up becoming an operating division within Expedia, at which point you left?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the company was acquired by a company called Um, Interactive Corp, which is Barry Diller's company. Barry Diller at the time was essentially rolling up a bunch of large internet properties. His idea was that somehow he'd figure out how to share traffic between all of them and save money in marketing and customer acquisition across all these different sort of massive sites. So this is, he had travel, he had Expedia, he had Hotwire, he bought us, he was in uh, dating. So he had match.com Uh, He was in ticketing. So he owned Ticketmaster. So he had all these different properties and he was trying to figure out how to make them all work together. At some point along the way, he ended up deciding to have Expedia roll out and be its own public company as a a self-contained travel company. And at that point, we were rolled in under that division, that company. Um, So Expedia, the public company, was a company that included Expedia.com, Hotels.com, Hotwire, TripAdvisor, um, and then a bunch of other smaller companies that I'm I'm not even sure exist anymore. And so it became this powerhouse travel company. And one of the first projects as part of that was to merge the Expedia and Hotels.com systems together together the advantage that hotels.com had over all of the other travel websites was we, and this is to Dave Lippman's credit, we had created what ultimately became the merchant model in travel, which is typically travel the way travel, uh, online travel companies work. And this is true even today is they worked on a commission basis. So they would take some percent of whatever transaction they Handled. So if they were selling an American Airlines ticket, they took three or 4%, you know, charged American Airlines three or 4% for that customer, basically. Hotels.com was pre negotiating with hotels and buying what they would say was distressed inventory. So, what most people don't know about the hotel industry is they operate, they actually intentionally operate at um, somewhere around a 60 to 70% occupancy rate. So they don't, they typically have 30% on any given day of their rooms go unsold. Oh, wow. Now you may say, well, why would you ever do that? The reason is most large hotel companies are actually real estate businesses. So they're amassing this massive real estate portfolio, right? They're building these hotel properties. And the trigger for when they were making enough on a hotel property to then invest in another hotel property was getting to about 60 to 70% occupancy rate. So then they were making enough money off of that property. They then could go on to and invest more money into the next property. And so it was this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Once they got to that, they were sort of, that was good enough for them to move on to the next property. Whoa. And so this Dave- is kind of making me reconsider
0: <laughs> the way I set goals. So if I want to get to 100%, I'm going to shoot for 150. <laughs>
1: yeah. So Dave had smartly figured that out. And he was one of the first people to ever go to a hotel and say, I'll buy those hotel rooms for you at a discount because you're not going to sell them anyway. So I'll buy them from you for, call it 30 or 40% off of what you would sell them, you know, if you were selling them to the consumer. And then I'll resell them to the consumer at the right that you would have charged. And then I pocket that profit Was mm. sort of the model that he created. What that meant effectively was, the companies like Expedia were operating on three to 5% margins because that was their commission rate. Hotels.com was operating on a 28% margin because that was the difference between what we bought the hotel rooms for and what we sold them at. So we had a, we were a much more profitable business than the other travel businesses. So when Expedia rolled out, the strategy was how do we take that hotels.com inventory that's this higher margin inventory and we get it on the expedia.com website so when you're shopping on expedia.com you would have access to the inventory we'd sell that inventory over the commissioned inventory and then therefore make more money and be more profitable Mm that as you kind of imagine with two very large travel sites that project of making those two inventory systems talk together was a very big project and i was put in charge of that project and ran that project for the company for a year to get those connected and running and that was really the last accomplishment for me so once i was done with that i felt like i felt like i sort of had done what i you know came to do sort of like you know going back to the problem analogy i'd solved the problem the big problem that was a very complex problem to solve and i felt like okay i've achieved what i wanted to achieve here and i was kind of tired of working in big companies it was expedient hotels were competitors for so long that when they merged there was a lot of as you kind of imagine a lot of politics and a lot of infighting and you know just wasn't the greatest culture so i was ready to move on And I started looking around um, and I got introduced to a guy that had started this mobile content company. So he was essentially creating software catalogs and content catalogs for smartphones. And this was pre-iPhone. So this was before the iPhone was released. And so smartphones back then were Windows Mobile, BlackBerry, Palm Pilots, these kinds of things that were these devices that you know, were little handheld computers basically, but also had phone capability. But it was super fragmented. There weren't very many of them. There was probably a few million of these devices globally at the time. Um, but he had you know, smartly thought there's an opportunity here. I think this is going to grow and this is going to be a device that more and more people have and people need content. And and the notion of an app store like iPhone eventually created and changed the whole paradigm just didn't exist. And so, and a lot of these companies had no way, they just didn't know how to sell content. So he built this company and what Handango did, it was the software store on every one of these devices, but it wasn't a Handango branded store. It was a BlackBerry branded store or an AT&T branded store. So... If you wanted a ringtone or if you wanted a screensaver, really wasn't a ton of apps or some little bit of games and stuff. A lot of that back then was ringtones and screensavers and things like that. Um, wallpaper, things like that to customize your phone. That store was powered by Handango. So we were working with the carriers, all the major carriers, all the major device manufacturers, all the major OSs, and every one of those stores was powered by Handango, which sounds in today's thing, you think, wow, that's amazing. Could you imagine all that? But if we're talking about a few million devices
0: globally, so it wasn't big, but it was in an interesting place. Well, and I think the fascinating part about that is that you guys were doing it before Apple was doing it, you know, and I'm, I'm actually noticing a theme, Sean, <laughs> a lot of the problems that fascinated you in your career that you dedicated your life to figuring out, you were always ahead of the curve of the, tr- the upcoming trends. like. The internet, graphic <laughs> design, <laughs> um, coding even. When you, you were interested in coding when you were 12, I didn't even, I, oh my gosh, <laughs> I was not one of those interested in coding at 12, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but so now, you know, you wrap up at hotels.com and then you're looking for some, a new project to do. And which, by the way, I wanted to comment earlier. Mm-hmm. I think that that mindset is what sets people like you apart because most people would think, oh, you know, I, I know the ropes around here, I did a good job, I'm just gonna kind of coast here. And you're like, oh no, I'm done. I, like <laughs> I solved the issue that where's the next one? And then you end up, the, what intrigues you is building an app store.
1: Yeah, what intrigued me first was mobile. Obviously I think at that time I had a cell phone, but it was just a regular like cell phone, you know, like a Nokia or something, I can't even remember what it was. But the notion of smartphones, it felt like the early internet to me. You know, it felt like this is going to be big, right? You saw the potential, and I don't know what it'll ultimately be, but it's going to be really interesting and it's going to be fun. And there's going to be some interesting new problems to solve. And yeah, to your point, I like being in that mode. I'm a, I'm a big self-learner you know, I really love to, and this sort of even goes back to my consulting days. I love getting introduced to a new business or a new industry and having to figure it out, you know, read about it, learn about it, learn the language, learn the vocabulary, learn everything about it. And mobile was this big new thing that I didn't really know anything about it, but I knew enough. I knew that there was things that I'd learned in the internet that would translate to this. I just didn't know what, the end would be right. Mm-hmm. What does the end of this journey look like? But that was true with the internet. When I started in the internet, I remember one of my f- famous quotes. I'll, I'll never forget. Is a friend of mine, actually a, f- a brother of a friend of mine, who is a um, private equity guy. And I was this was in ninety, sort of been in ninety three or ninety four. He was the brother of a guy that worked with me at at Focus Two, and we were talking to him about. You know, we were getting into this internet, we're building this business, we're starting to do a lot of websites and e-commerce, and we think this is going to be, we might be able to sell this company. And he scoffed, and he said, you know what, the internet is going to be the CB radio of the 90s. It's going to go away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, he was wrong. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but it was an argument to be made, sure. right? Nobody knew for sure. Everybody, people were going to, this was when people were not sure people were going to buy online. They mm. weren't going to use their credit cards online. That's, that's that time period. And so, yeah, people would say, yeah, I'm building an e-commerce site, we were like, but who's going to go there and buy that? Who's going to buy pet food online or travel online, right? No one's going to put their credit card online. No one's going to do that. So, You could make an argument that this was not going to happen. I didn't believe that. I believed it was going to be big, but it was a time where there was uncertainty of that outcome. That's where mobile was when I went to Handango. I I thought it was going to be big. I remember having board meetings at Handango with our investors saying, if we could ever get to where there's 10 million smartphones in the world, we're going to have a really great business. <laughs> I literally said that many times. Wow. You know, and now there's billions and billions of smartphones in the world, right? So like literally almost everybody on the planet has one. There's no way back then we
0: thought it was ever going to be that. But we just thought there was going to be something. How long were you at Handango before you decided, or before you found the next thing, which ended up being um, you were pre- you were president at Tickets Now, which became Ticketmaster? Yeah, so I was at Handango for about three years. We went through a few rounds of financing.
1: We were growing. We actually were trying to pivot a bit and build a Handango branded consumer facing business. So, how do we build a, a a a content store that consumers could go to directly on their devices and and sort of build that brand kind of almost thinking about it from like a hotels.com perspective how do we move from b2b to to, you know direct to consumer Mm. and quite honestly that the iphone came out and i remember getting the first one and then shortly thereafter they released their first version of their app store and when they released the app store and i tried the app store for the first time i knew Handango was done Oh, you're kidding. I knew so, we were done. So that was that was the impetus to for, leave. To yeah. leave. Yeah. Yeah. I was being recruited. So Cheryl Rosner, the woman that I'd worked at hotels.com, had been recruited to a company called Tickets Now to be the CEO. And they were essentially a competitor to StubHub. So they were in the secondary ticketing business doing resale. And she'd been calling me, going like, hey, come join me. This is gonna be a great opportunity. And of course I was at Handingo. I was like, no, I'm this is great. I'm you know, thing. And then the app store came out. And I just knew that the notion of a third-party app store was gonna go away. It just wasn't gonna work. All of the problems that we were trying to solve, you know, one of the biggest problems that we had was there were so many different devices and so many different os's every one of them had to be the app had to be recoded specifically for that so if you had a blackberry with a you know 320 by 480 screen that oh, was very God. different than a palm pilot that had this size screen and had different input devices so there was no consistency there was no way to make one thing that worked on lots of different devices. It was a real pain point in creating and distributing content that we just couldn't figure out how to solve. Technically we were trying different things, but it was just a real inhibitor to the business. Apple basically said the way to solve it is own your own app store tune for your own devices and forget about the other operating systems and other devices that are out there. We'll just have our own. And of course, everybody followed suit immediately. Um, so I knew our business was done. I mean, it lingered on for a few years after I left, but it you know faded fairly quickly. So I ended up deciding to join Tickets Now. Again, completely different industry. Yeah. Also still pretty early. So Resell, StubHub had just been acquired by eBay, but they're still not a big business. And Resell at the time, and I think Resell today, I don't think people think of Resell the way they thought of Resell then. Back then Resell was this like, Ooh, these gross brokers you go meet in the alley somewhere and buy a ticket and maybe it's good maybe it's not you Mm -hmm. know kind of thing or and there was a lot of resistance in the in the live event and sports industry people didn't like resale partly because they weren't participating in the economics of it mainly is really why they didn't like it but they also thought that the the sort of taint that the consumer had of that sort of then reflected on their brands you know so if you're you know, famously Bruce Springsteen or Pearl Jam, remember, probably, you know, fought Ticketmaster and their fees and stuff. They were always fighting the ticketing companies anyways, because they didn't like the perception that, you know, that they were overcharging their customers. And resale was just another form of overcharging customers for access. But I thought, I did become convinced that I thought resale could be a big business. Um, And if we could figure out a way to make feel like a safe thing to do for consumers that you didn't have to worry about fraud, that your ticket would be legitimate, that it could be a big business. And so that's why I left it to, to, to go there. The new problem that you identified that you wanted to <laughs> yeah. solve. <laughs> yeah. Here, here comes another interesting problem to solve. Um, and so I joined the company over the next year, rebuilt the platform. And, you know, this one was just, I think just good timing Ticketmaster. had obviously been paying close attention to eBay acquiring um, StubHub and was worrying about that from a competitive standpoint. So they had made a strategic decision to get into resale and they were just looking for the right business to acquire. Uh, So they came knocking literally within months after I joined the company. And, you know, it was a fairly abbreviated courtship. I think we, you know, spent a few months talking back and forth and working out a deal and then they, they ended up acquiring the business. Interesting, this is the... This is when I really got to know Eric. So Eric was had become president of Ticketmaster. Eric Corman, who's my current business partner, had become president of Ticketmaster. He actually had worked at IEC, so I'd known him a bit at IEC, but he had, you know, moved over to Ticketmaster and then became president. So he actually did the deal to acquire us. And so I ended up, Cheryl left as part of the acquisition. I ended up becoming president of Tickets Now. And Eric put me in charge of all of the resale business for North America, which was mm. 80% tickets now, and then the rest was some some businesses they had where they were doing resale for like the NFL and for the U.S. Open and a few other big sports leagues, they were doing, handling resale for them. Basically, mainly season ticket holders reselling their tickets they're not using was what they were supporting. So I got to take over that business. But more importantly and most interestingly was, and this was the vision that Eric and I had, was if we could connect the tickets now and Ticketmaster Systems together because Ticketmaster was the original issuer of the ticket. So it knew who the customer was originally, and it knew if the ticket was valid or not. So when I got a broker to upload a ticket into Tickets Now, once we built this, in, this um, connection, I was able to bounce that ticket off the Ticketmaster database and validate that it was an, a good ticket to resell and then reissue it in the new customer's name so now that person had an actual ticket in their name that if they went to the venue and there was any question Ticketmaster could look it up and they could actually find them and it was a valid ticket genius yeah so it was a i think a game changer in terms of resale and it led to you know the we built the nfl ticket exchange which is now the primary way if you want to buy uh, NFL tickets in resale, you're going to buy them off the NFL ticket exchange because it's completely validated. It's guaranteed. It's all verified, you know, by bouncing it back off the
0: Ticketmaster system. So, um, that I think, you know, really changed resale. Wow, Sean. And I didn't realize that you and Eric met at Ticketmaster. I thought you all, I was always under the impression that you met at Ralph Lauren. No, we
1: met at Ticketmaster. We actually met at IEC. So he was working at when I was at Hotels.com, He was in corp dev at uh, at IAC, and uh, so we we would meet. He would be at like when I'd go up to do you know report quarterly earnings to the to the parent company. We'd have to fly up to New York and do that. He would be in the room, um, you know, hearing what was going on, and ask questions. And then we'd go to retreats and stuff and meet. So I knew him. I wasn't friends with him at that time. You know, it was only when we worked together at Ticketmaster that we developed our friendship. So we got to be good friends there. I worked for him for that about a year and a half. And then, you know, I left to go to GameStop. But we stayed in contact. And then when he went to Ralph Lauren,
0: when I was at GameStop, he was the one that ultimately talked me into coming to Ralph Lauren to work with him. And how long were you all working together at Ralph Lauren before you decided to start Fleur. I worked at Ralph Lauren for four years. He worked there for three. So he left
1: about a year before I did. He left the company. There were some changes in senior leadership um, that I don't think he was happy with. And, you know, he decided to leave the company. I was still in the big project of building this, you know, global digital platform for Ralph Lauren. And so I was I had my own division basically and my own office and team. And so I was very focused on trying to finish this project when he left, but we were obviously talking almost daily, even while he was, you know, long in the company and he was starting to think about what he wanted to do next. And through a series of conversations sort of came up with this idea of starting this D to C fragrance company partly because we we'd been exposed to fragrance at ralph lauren you know ralph lauren has fragrances where they don't make them but they license their their brand to them and then sell them through their channels and so we we knew it was a high margin product and we knew nobody had really figured out how to sell it online you know nobody i mean if you think it's the obvious question well how are you going to buy fragrance online if you can't smell it right so um we thought well, there's probably ways to figure that out. And if we can figure that out, then we could be the first, you know, big fragrance company selling, you know, fragrance online direct to consumer. So that was sort of the whole idea behind Fleur. He obviously wanted me to join. I was in New York. I was in this middle of this project. I brought my younger son, my my older son was off to college, but my younger son, who is now in high school there. And one of the commitments we'd made when we moved to New York is that I won't, I won't move you while you're in high school. I'll let you, you know, I don't want to disrupt that. And so, you know, I told Eric at the time, I said, I I can't move. He had decided he wanted to start the business in Austin for cost reasons more than anything. Obviously, it's expensive to start a business in New York. Uh, And he'd been on a board of a company in Austin, gotten uh, exposed to Austin and thought it'd be a good market for the business to start the business. in. obviously, I'd lived a lot in Texas. And so Austin was appealing, but I just had made this commitment to my family. So I said, "I, I can be an advisor, but I can't be part of the company. And then about a month before the site launched um, or maybe three months before the site launched, um, we were having a conversation with my family and my son piped up and said, you know, don't do this because of me. I, you know, he said, I'd be happy to go back to Texas. I'm, you know, I, I like parts of New York. I don't like all of it. And, you know, obviously he grew up in Texas, so he was comfortable with the notion of me in Texas. And so we, we, figured out schools fairly quickly and found a good situation for him in Austin and made the decision to join Fleur. So I joined the company about a month before the
0: website launched. And, you know, I remember before I applied to work at Fleur, I heard the concept sampling fragrance at home and I had never heard of anyone doing that before. And that's what I found the most appealing about the business too.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it was,
0: you know, in hindsight, it's the obvious,
1: you know, approach, right? You get, you got to get something to people and let them try it so we pretty quickly, I mean, I think we were inspired. Warby Parker had, uh, you know, had launched and was doing well. And part of what they did is they figured out a way to let people sample glasses. So they would, you would pick five frames and they'd send them to you. You could try them on and then you'd send back whatever you didn't like. And so we saw that and said, well, that's, that's you know what at least one way to try to solve this is create a sample set and so that's the notion that we launched the business with was was sampling um the idea being you know for for basically cost i think we we it was like 15 bucks which basically covered postage and materials and the cost of the fragrance and stuff we would send you could choose three fragrances Um, From our website, and then we'd send them to you, and then you try them on. And the idea being, hopefully, you'd find one of them that you loved, and then you'd come back, and we'd credit you the fifteen dollars for the sample kit. So you were, you were, you were even at that point, right? You had no cost for that. Um, And so that was the idea. I think the only other thing, again, this going back to like trying to solve problems, like how do you figure that out? And then the other one was, well, how do you create a website experience? that even steers them to three fragrances. Mm -hmm. Like what's the right way to help them try to understand whether this might be good for them or not. Um, And in that one, we were really inspired by Ralph Lauren, which is, you know, I think, I think the real secret to Ralph Lauren is storytelling. You know, Ralph does not think about selling and creating and selling fashion in the way most designers do, which are tend to be, what's trends, colors, things like that. Ralph is always thinking about things almost like a movie. So when he creates a line or a new season, they start with like, what's the story? So it could be him and his designers get together and they say, you know, they get inspired by Dr. Zhivago. And then they get into like talking about, well, what's this, what's it like to be in Russia and in this time period? And they pick a period and they, they almost create a movie set. They literally, they're they um, they have crews that go around all the world and they get props and all kinds of things and they bring them and they literally set up like a movie set so that Ralph thinks of the models as like characters in a movie and he'll have the the models try the clothes on and they'll come out into this movie set they create and then and it helps him think like yes that's how that would look or how it would feel and so that's how he designs. And if you see his advertising, it's always a model in some scene, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether it's Western or Polo, which is, you know, a sort of country club, northeast kind of country club. There's always some story kind of scene that, that, it's a, that it's in. And it's his vision of what it would be like to be in that life. And so we thought, well, can we create stories behind these fragrances, you know,
0: that, help people sort of feel like what it must be like to wear it. You guys did that beautifully. I remember the second I would put on the fragrance, I would immediately be inserted into the story that you guys created around each scent. And so I know after starting Fleur, you and Eric ended up seeing the opportunity to acquire what was at the time called Texas Beauty Labs, which Mm -hmm. is now Good Kind, where you're working now. How did that opportunity come about when you're trying to build this, you know, I mean, I guess I know that Fleur was a considered a clean beauty brand at the mm. time. I think it still is. Yeah. How did, how did you see that opportunity? How did it come about? You know, again, it sort of fell in our lap. So
1: we were building Fleur. Fleur was a venture backed company. So like most venture backed companies, we were burning cash. We were spending all of our money on marketing and trying to drive customer acquisition and grow. Right. So it's the classic venture firm appro- uh, you know, approach. Just grow as fast as you can so you can get some scale and market share. And then you try to start making money and profit from there. So we were in that model. We've been doing it for a few years. We knew when we started the company that we wanted to ultimately get into other fragrance-based products. So candles was one of our early other categories. And then we were looking at some other categories and we decided we wanted to do body wash and body lotion. And the idea being, if you love a Fleur fragrance and now you can get it in a wash and lotion, it's just another way to wear your favorite Fleur fragrance. Right? So we started looking around for a company that could help us make the product. And again, I had no idea about this industry. So there's this whole industry called contract manufacturing. What most people don't know is most brands don't make their own products. They work with contract manufacturers that make their products. They make it, put it in their containers, their packaging, label it, whatever, and ship it off to them. And then that's what goes onto the, you know, stores or, you know, onto the digital shelves of e-commerce sites. Um, so we were looking at contract manufacturers and we stumbled across this small company in the Austin area. And I thought, well, it'd be great to work with somebody in Austin. And uh, the woman that had the company, uh, had, and you know, I'll keep this abbreviated, but she had built a nice little business. Not particularly sophisticated from a business standpoint, but she had lucked onto a client that was a big natural deodorant client um, that had brought her business to grow pretty rapidly over the previous couple of years. So she was doing somewhere 8 to $10 million a year in revenue at the time that we met her, but in a pretty unsophisticated way. And I don't mean that in a negative to her. It was actually amazing that she was able to figure it out. She just had never run any sort of business at scale she wasn't using no automation for the production of the, of the product or anything. It was all hand poured, manually done, everything. And so we thought, you know, we started working with on washing lotion. And we thought, this is a really interesting business. And natural deodorant, we hadn't really been exposed to, but we started thinking, well, maybe we should do a Fleur deodorant. And the more we looked at the market, we thought, there's this clean beauty wave that's happening. And in fact, when we started Fleur people weren't even saying clean beauty it sort of had become a term during the time that we had fleur we didn't even call them fleur fragrance clean fragrance and i remember arguing over whether clean was the right word or not like we just were like unsure of all of this thing so all this was kind of evolving and but we thought clean beauty is going to be big and we're not going to be in the whole thing we're in this sort of you know, niche part of it. We're not in cosmetics, right? We're not in high-end skincare. We're not in, we're not going to be any of those things as a brand, but maybe strategically, if we acquired this business, it'll give us another way to participate in that. It'll give us another surfboard to ride the wave, right? So, you know, long story short, we ended up deciding to acquire the business. This was the year before COVID, and so we acquired the business, same investors. So the investors that invest in Fleur, we just used primarily our own stock and a little bit of cash to acquire the business. And we built a new plant, bought a couple million dollars of equipment to outfit it, got this plant all ready to go and launched the plant. Two weeks later, we shut down because of COVID quarantine. That was... One of the worst years I've had in my career in terms of just the challenge of it, you know, Fleur sales slowed down. Turns out when people are stuck at home, they don't care about wearing fragrance as much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And obviously their business was selling to a lot of brands that also weren't selling much at all. So their business slowed down. Um, And we, you know, we were running out of cash pretty quickly and we weren't able to raise cash. You no know, investors at the time were, you know, on the sideline waiting to see what was gonna happen. Nobody was gonna give anybody money at that time. And so we made the decision, the painful decision to sell Fleur because it was the most marketable asset that we had. We'd already had some people interested in buying the business before, just wasn't the right time. So we went back out to the market and ended up finding a buyer for for Fleur, sold Fleur to raise money, basically to save what became good kind. So as you pointed out, it was originally called Texas PD lives where we rebranded it good kind and kind of kept it afloat for that year. And then slowly the next year started to climb out of the hole. And then since then we've been on a really good trajectory and the business is growing at a really nice clip and profitable and we're out of the woods. We don't need cash. Um, so we're in a good place, you know, it's a, This is one of those where I didn't actually set out to solve that problem. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the first job where I didn't, that was not my choice, right? I didn't, we had thought when we acquired the company, the founder would run it. It would just be a division. We, you know, we'd be at a board level kind of, but we weren't going to be very involved in that business. Now all of a sudden it it is the business for me. And I'd say it's been interesting going back to the self-learning. I knew nothing about manufacturing. So, you know, shortly after that, in the second year after COVID, the founder left. Um, And so I've been running operations for this business since then. And it's been a real learning experience. Um, It's a business I had no ideas about. It's a very regulated industry, something I hadn't had to deal with in the past. And so it's been great from that perspective. Again, I love solving new problems and figuring things out. And so I've enjoyed that part of it. I don't think this is something I want to do for the rest of my life you know i i'm still like this sort of technology product guy I, I like digital and i like being in the internet and this is pretty far from that pretty far astray so i you know i think our goal ultimately and you know obviously we have investors that expect some return on their investment at some point so our goal would be probably get this business to a decent size and then sell the business and then figure out kind of what we do next
0: and it's funny too, because this is just another trend that you got ahead of. Clean beauty. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started working at Fleur, I had never heard the term. Okay? Yeah. And yeah. actually I have a funny story. Um, I remember, I think it was an intern that was handling some marketing for Fleur at the time. She's like, hey, will you will you help me um, with this video that I'm going to make for social media? And I thought, oh God, I hated being filmed. And so I was already nervous about it, but she's, she sits me down. On the sofa, right next to Eric. So Eric, the you know the CEO, is <laughs> sitting at his desk, and I'm I'm about to be recorded. She has the camera on the tripod, and she and I've been working at Fleur for maybe a few weeks at this point. And she asks, she asks me, "So Alexander, tell us what clean beauty means to you." Right in front of <laughs> Eric, and I'm like, "Oh God, I had no idea! I didn't know what clean beauty was." Yeah, but. So another trend that you you get ahead of and then, you know, you end you guys see the opportunity to, to acquire good kind. And now this is the business you're running. I think it's really amazing how it all fell into place. And I know that you you had mentioned before that now you guys are doing three times the revenue than when you had just acquired it just a few years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're we've been growing at about a 25 percent. Kager compounded growth rate. Um, So yeah, we're about three times the revenue now. Wow. Um, You know, we should be north of 30, 35 million next year. So we're on a really good trajectory, which is great. Um, It's a, you know, primarily what we do is make natural deodorant. Um, We do some skincare, a little bit of hair care. We're trying to grow the skincare side of the business, but natural deodorant is just, it's growing at a really tremendous clip right now. Um it's essentially people switching from using, you know, antiperspirant which has aluminum in it. And I think most people know aluminum's not great for you to get in your body. And one of the easy ways for it to do is get through your your pores under your arm. So, you know, I think a lot of people are becoming more aware of that and they're switching to natural deodorant. Um and so we're, you know, we're just one of the few companies in the US that that make natural deodorant well. So it's, uh, we found a great niche. Um, it's a growing category. It should drive the growth of the company, you know, well into the, to the size that we need it to be to, you know, have a good transaction and outcome for our investors. And it's interesting, you know, there's, there's innovation in there. It's figuring out kind of new formulas and new ingredients that, you know, the biggest problem with natural deodorant is it doesn't stop you from sweating, right? It can keep you from smelling, but it doesn't stop you from, from sweating. And so, that's a problem we're constantly working on like how do we make it better and better at helping with moisture um but yeah it's um you know again i i'll say the same thing again i i tend to somehow have these opportunities that that come up and you know i do i jump on them because they're interesting and then it turns out it's as you pointed out sometimes it's a a new thing that you know ends up being something big um that's i think has just been luck more than anything, but it's,
0: it it has been a theme throughout my career. What advice would you give to somebody who's just starting their careers? You know, because fresh out of college, oftentimes you have no idea what you want to do. What, what advice would you give to someone?
1: My biggest advice is just start doing something you find interesting. Don't worry if it's the end all be all, if it's going to be the career you, you spend the next 40 years doing. I've done so many different things in my life so many different industries, so many different roles, so many different types of companies. And there's a thread that goes through them, but I I think what that tells me is as long as you're doing something you enjoy and you like and you find interesting. It's an interesting problem, it's an interesting thing to do and it it gets you up in the morning, gets you to work, you know. Then do that. You know, cuz who knows? Cuz the next thing that you do it's probably going to happen because of what you're doing. And, you know, one thing leads to the other. And I just think, listen, there's, there's careers that you make a decision on in college. You're a lawyer, you're a doctor, right? That's a, you, you go to school for that and you're going to do that for the rest of your life. And those are great careers. And I think anybody that wants to do those things, I encourage them. That's great. But if you are not somebody like that, And you, you know, have gotten a business degree or marketing degree or, you know, computer science degree or whatever it is, you know, my son, my youngest son's an industrial designer. You know, there's, I think you get a good foundation, you get some basic skills in college, and then you just go out in the market and just start being good at something. Find something you can be good at, find something that you like and just go. And don't worry about what five years or 10 years from now is. It'll work itself out. Just keep... Keep doing a good job. If you do a good job,
0: things sort of take care of themselves. I love that. And Sean, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice specifically tailored to you before you embarked on this journey that has been your fantastic career, what would you say to yourself?
1: I would say the only things that I've done in my career that I would probably not do again have been working in large companies and again this is for me everybody's different right Uh, there's obviously security in working in large companies i know now that what i like to do is is build things and it took me many years to really land on like that's the thing that i really really if you look at the thread through everything that i've done right whether it's big or small companies it's been building things it's much harder to build things in big companies than it is in small companies, especially the kinds of things that I like to do really new and innovative things. And so if I had any piece of advice, I'd say, steer closer to the, to the smaller opportunities. You know, those are the things that you enjoy. Those are the things that can have more interesting outcomes and you have more control. You have more input, you have more ability to steer them. Right. You know, I, I loved my time at Ralph Lauren, but it's Ralph's company. Like, you know, I'm only going to change that company so much. Right. But at Fleur, I could be involved in every decision about the culture, the packaging, the messaging, the, how did we talk to customers? What was the website like? All of those things. And that's where I find joy
0: is, are those things. Well, Sean, thank you so much for this. This was amazing. And I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It was fun.
0: As we bid farewell to this episode of From Vision to Creation, the extraordinary journey of Sean Freeman unfolds as a testament to the transformative power of resilience, innovation, and a relentless pursuit of excellence. From the inception of his first company during his college days, to his current role as Chief Operating Officer of Goodkind Co., Sean's trajectory has been nothing short of explosive. Reflecting on Sean's illustrious career, it's clear that his impact spans across industries and corporate landscapes. From spearheading the global digital technology and operations at Ralph Lauren to leading GameStop through a digital transformation, Sean's strategic vision has consistently pushed boundaries. To those listening, let Sean Freeman's story be a beacon of inspiration. His trajectory from a college entrepreneur to a seasoned COO is a testament to the transformative power of passion and dedication. As we bid farewell to this episode, remember that your journey too can be a series of transformative moments driven by a relentless pursuit of your vision.